Our psalm reading this morning is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of the great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome again and good morning. Uh, We're glad that you're in worship with us. And if you're new, we've been going through a series where we're looking at the different parts, the different components of our liturgy and asking, why do we do them? Why do we do them as we do them? And uh, what basis in tradition, what basis in Scripture do they have? And why are they important for our everyday life? And this morning, uh, we've come to the Word, and particularly how we handle the Word on Sunday morning, that is by preaching. So I get a few minutes to talk to you about how I talk to you every week. So that's interesting. I get to talk to you about preaching. Um, So let me take a few moments before we do that and pray for our time together. Father, I pray that you would give us grace, for we so badly need it. I pray that you would give me the words to say, your words, your healing words of grace. Many of us have woken up this morning and realized that we've been living a life of confusion. We've been living a life without purpose, without direction, and we need you to guide us. Others others of us woke, woke up this morning just as we have many times in the past, Remembering hurts, remembering scars, remembering people who have harmed us, remembering things that have gone wrong in our lives. And we're fearful, we're scared, we're not sure what the future holds. Others of us have anxieties and worries that won't be quiet, that keep shouting, and they've clouded out a sense of your presence and of your nearness. And so, Father, I pray that in all of these needs, that we would look to you, that we would know that we don't have to search to find you, but that you have actually revealed yourself, as strange as it may be to us, in the written word, as well as in the created order. And I pray that we would find you there. And through this reflection upon this word, upon this psalm, would you let us find you? Would you let us find Jesus? We pray in his name. 
Amen. So I have a pretty weird job, <laughs> and I uh, often get called a preacher, and it kind of takes me aback. Wait, wait a minute, no, I'm not a, I'm not a preacher, because that word is loaded with negative connotations, right? And I want to say that, well, I'm not just a preacher, I'm a pastor. But frankly, preaching is a big part of what I do. Every week for 50 or so times a year, I open up the scriptures and I pour over them and I read commentaries and I write and I think and I rewrite and I edit and I edit up until the point that I actually walk up here. Um, but I had this weird job of getting to stand up here and talk to you about God's Word for about 10 minutes or so, only to get up in Monday morning and start the clock all over again. It's exhilarating and yet grueling at the same time. And I put a lot of work into this because I want to be prepared. I think of it as a very high calling. And yet as I read the passage this morning, I realize that it's not my words at all that have power. It's God's word that has power. And that's, that is very humbling. And I, I know this because on weeks where I feel like my sermon was unusually good, not one of you says a word. Not one thing. I ask people, you know, why they come to in-town, why they like in-town, and it's usually the music. Thank you, Matt. Not me, not my preaching, but that's a good thing, and I realize that it's really God's Word that you need to hear and not my words. And also, when I feel like I've just swung and missed and nothing was working, I kept stumbling over words, tons of you come up and say, that that was the sermon that God really spoke to you, and it just aligned perfectly with something that was going on in your life. It's a strange job to have. It's a strange function of my job. But you see, you as a listener have a weird job as well because you're called to invite these words into your heart and let God's Word take root in your soul and begin to change you from the inside out. But how are we all accustomed to listening to the spoken Word? Think about the State of the Union every year. Writers and editors and the president himself gets together and spends hours writing this text, and it takes them five minutes afterwards to just tear it apart and talk about all of the things that he should, should have said, all of the things that they wanted him to say that he didn't, everything that was unclear. We're taught to listen to the, the spoken word critically and analytically. And if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you've probably developed a taste for preaching, a taste for the kind of preaching that you want to hear, substance and style. And so you come in here with a lot of expectations that some of which I may meet and many of which I want. And so your job is weird because somehow prayerfully you've got to cut through all that distortion and allow God's Word to speak to you despite all of your expectations, despite your, even your personhood at times. You have to listen to the preacher that you have not the preacher that you necessarily want, not the preacher that you would design in a lab. And as I said, preaching in general, what a loaded word, has such negative connotations. And yet, throughout the Scripture, we see that preaching is one of the primary, vital ways that God gets to work in your heart. The preached, spoken word brings God to bear upon your needs, your problems, and the solutions that God offers. And so we need to see, first of all, the necessity of preaching. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Every 24 hours, just like it was in the time of David, the psalmist, we get day and night that pour forth speech about God. The heavens, the created order. If you go outside and look up, that's the heavens that the psalmist is talking about. They declare His glory, that is His honor, His splendor, His riches. It's His kingly regalia. It's His entourage, but it's also His handiwork. It's that which He has made to reveal Himself to His creatures. But there's something missing, right? Because some people walk out into the starry sky, some people witness a stunning sunset and exclaim, that's God's handiwork. He must be amazing. I want to get to know Him. He's magnificent. And to others, the stars are just billions of flaming balls of gas. They don't get the message. The connection is not made that this is God's handiwork. And David wrestles with this because you see in verse 2 he says, they pour forth speech. That is, the heavens, the created order, pours forth speech. And yet, in verse 3, they have no speech. They use no words. Well, which is it? Well, David to David, it's both. It's a paradox because the heavens are speaking of the magnificence of God, but we're not able to get the message until we have a cipher, until we have an interpreter, until we have someone verbally speaking to tell us the message that we're supposed to get from the created order. There's information coming, but it's not verbal. You can tell so much about someone just by their body language, by how they, how they hold themselves, how they sit, the way they use their hands, how they use their face. You can tell so much about them before, before they speak. Are they confident? Are they nervous? Are they mad at you? Are they happy with you? Are they wanting conversation or are they wanting to avoid conversation? You can intuit so much about someone. You can get to know a person before they speak, but intuitions can be wrong. And you'll never know someone fully just by their body language. The speech from the heavens, the created order, is powerful, but it's limited. It's magnificent, but it's mistakable. We need God Himself to speak verbally, clearly, and unmistakably if we're to understand the message. Because what we need as humans isn't just to be awestruck. It's not just to be impressed. But what we need is relationship. We need spiritual healing. And so we see not just the necessity of preaching, but we see also the invitation of preaching. Thus far in the passage, the, when we get down, when he's talking about the, the created order, he uses the word Elohim, which is the general generic term for God. It's not a term of disrespect, it's just generic. It's just general. But down in verse 7, David begins to talk about the law of God, the statutes, the precepts of God, the commands of God, that is his speech, his verbal personal revelation. It's no longer Elohim that he uses, but it's Yahweh, the personal, covenantal, relational name for God. In our day, in our language, father is a generic term, but it's not a term of disrespect, but it can denote something very, very general. We all have fathers, but we probably don't address them as father. Most of us probably say dad or maybe daddy, and that word, unlike father, conjures up a different image. For me, it conjures up a very specific, 
specific, particular image, an image of a, of a specific person who loves me and wants my good. He's a father unlike anyone else. He's dad. You see, there's Elohim and there's Yahweh. And when he begins to talk about his revealed spoken word, it's now Yahweh, the God who wants to have relationship with his people. If you want to know the glory and the majesty and the power, the creative instinct of God, all you have to do is walk outside. But if you want to be invited into a father-child, devoted, intimate relationship, you have to have God's spoken word. Because in Scripture, he's not just Elohim, but he's Yahweh. Not just father in a general sense, but he's your father. He's my father. He's the God who loves us and has given us the gift of his son. The one who made the stars reaches out to you with the words of life. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. You watch the the rehab shows on television where they restore old, dilapidated, broken-down houses. Well, that's kind of the image here. There's a shell, but there's something broken. It's really a house, but it needs to be restored. It needs to be repaired. It's uninhabitable. And there's something that David is saying here about our souls that needs to be restored. There's something about our inner person that's in disrepair, something foundational about who we are that God wants to heal and mend and redeem. And to do that, we need more than an impression of God. We need His Word. We need His spoken, revealed will. We can go outside and look at the stars and be awestruck. And maybe we think something is out there beyond that. Someone is out there beyond that. But that doesn't restore our soul. In fact, it may leave us more lifeless and more alone than we were before. Because we're just this one person on the third rock from the sun that's spinning around a galaxy of billions of stars. And there are billions of other galaxies of billions of stars. So we may be awestruck, but doesn't that leave us a little bit alone? We can be impressed with the created order, but it doesn't restore our soul. It doesn't repair the heart. And who are we, if we're that small, to hope for transcendence? Only if we can become convinced that we are not alone in the universe, that we're not insignificant, that in fact the Creator who made those billions and billions of stars wants to know us and love us and restore us, only then can we begin to have hope. Only then do we look at the starry host and not shudder. But notice what David highlights as refreshing here. What is it that restores the soul? It's law. It's statutes. It's commands. We need to look not only at the necessity of the Word or the invitation of the Word, that is to be restored, but what type of restoration is the Word offering? The restoration of the Word or the restoration of preaching, if you will. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Now, I'm glad that we have civil laws. I'm glad that we have speed limits and stoplights and stop signs, at least most of the time, except when I'm in a hurry to get to church. I don't like those things. But they're good things, right? Because they they keep order. It's good that we have laws against corruption and laws against stealing. 
But I don't look at the civil law and think, oh my gosh, it's radiant. It gives sight to my eyes. It restores my soul. These laws are so amazing. It refreshes my soul. Of course not. And C.S. Lewis wrestles with David's language here. How ravished he is by God's law. How could this be? And C.S. Lewis says in his commentary on the Psalms, this is not the language of scrupulosity. It's the language of a man ravished by beauty. What he understood is that the law, the written statutes, aren't, first of all, proscriptive or prescriptive. The law is not primarily do's and don'ts. Instead, it's an invitation to restoration. They're part of God's revealed spoken will that He wants to live in covenant relationship with His people. That's the basis of law, of precepts, of statutes. That's what David is getting at. That's why he's ravished by their beauty. When two people are married, they come up and they take vows to one another. They're these vows are both proscriptive and prescriptive. They're the rules of the new family. In a sense, they're the law of the marriage. But no one hears these vows in the congregation and says, my, that's kind of rulesy. My, that's, that's kind of overbearing. That's restrictive. But don't they trust one another? Of course not. No one says that about vows in a marriage because we believe these vows are beautiful. They're not simply a boundary avoid this behavior, do this behavior, and then your marriage will be fine. We all know intuitively that's not what the law of marriage is about. The laws, the vows that they take to one another are the context in which they live towards one another. They're the context in which they bear fruit in their relationship. They're the context. The law of the marriage is the context in which there is intimacy. The first five books of the Bible are called what? Torah, law. And yet, what do they contain? What do the five books, first five books of the Bible contain? Well, they contain some law. They contain some precepts, some guidelines, some do's and don'ts. But they contain so much more than that. Torah contains the story of how God created humanity to love and enjoy Him forever and how He then responds when humanity says, no, thank you. I'd rather do life on my own. It shows God continually, continually pursuing the lover that has run away. He offers us provision, protection. He offers us the boundaries of a proper, healthy relationship. And we say, I would like your provision, I'd like your protection, but I'd also like to continue living life how I want to. I'd like, I'd like to continue having illicit affairs. Humanity, you and I, and we see even in the Torah, the law, that God continues to invite us back, continues to woo us back. The law is a love story. Torah is a love story. And this is what Lewis is getting at when he says David is using the language of a man ravished by beauty. What David realizes is that God has pursued me, not to punish me, not to upbraid me, but to restore me, to heal me. And his law is giving direction by which David can respond to and live into that invitation. It's the promises of relationship. 
They were the context of intimacy. And so the law for David wasn't an artificial boundary, but instead it was a boulevard into relationship, into the very presence of God and into restoration. And this is what delights his heart. God's revealed will, the Bible, invites David into relationship. You see, it's not a ladder to climb, but it's an invitation to, t- to take advantage of. The Bible, the law, it's not that by which we earn standing in favor by God, but it's the way in which we live out a beautiful life that He receives with joy. But hold on, because it gets better. There's another thing that David knows that brings him joy, that gives light to his eyes. He knows that the law, the statutes of God that have been given to him can direct him to a moral life, to, in fact, a beautiful life. But he knows his own track record is rather spotty. And probably your track record is spotty. I know mine is. And moreover, that there are sins that he may not even be aware of. Verse 11, by them, that is, God's words, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. What he recognizes is that a fault may be hidden, not because it's too small to recognize, but because it's too characteristic to register. Don't we hurt people without knowing it? Don't we harm people by words that we think are fairly innocuous? Don't we do extensive harm in our relationships with very small decisions that we take for granted? We go through life disappointing, failing, injuring other people, and when we're confronted about it, we're like, whoa, I had no idea you thought that. I had no idea that would have hurt you in that way. And then likely we get defensive and begin to explain why it's that person's problem and not our own. But what David is saying, just as in that human relationship, how we can hurt people without knowing it, how we can harm the relationship without being able to identify what's going wrong. Don't you, don't you wrestle with that in your relationships? What's going wrong here? I can't figure it out. What David is saying is that our brokenness, our need of repair lies so deep within us that's often difficult to see that we're so thoroughly in need of grace and forgiveness that even when we confess, as David is doing here, we're not even aware of how far we're falling short. We're not even aware of the great distance between who God is and who we are. But without grace, wouldn't that just crush us and crumble us to pieces? Instead, David delights in that thought. David delights in that recognition. He delights even in the midst of laying his soul bare before God, even when confessing his sin and knowing that he's just confessed the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. He delights. And why is that? It's because he knows that he's relating to God, not where God is not his accuser or his judge, but he's his refuge. Verse 14 He says, he is my rock. That's the language of security, of refuge, of safety. And when David looks at God in spite of all of his sin and all of God's holiness, he says, he is my safety. He is my security. 
And therefore, he's not crushed and he doesn't crumble in fear. He doesn't run away from God, but he runs to God. And he also says that he's not one, God is not one who has to be convinced to help. But did you catch the word? God is his champion. God pursues David, pursues his good. And it reasons then that his law and all of the commands are for David's good. And then finally, he's his redeemer. Verse 14, he is my rock and my redeemer. And this we need to hear over and over and over. We need this proclaimed to us. We need this preached to us until it gets down into the very guts of who we are. We forget it so quickly. We need a preacher to stand before you, to stand before me, and to say the Bible is not a pathway of spirituality by which we demonstrate our faithfulness, but in which God demonstrates his faithfulness to us. The law, the commands of God, are not those things, those precepts by which we follow to gain his favor, to twist his arm into loving us, but it's the way that he is expressing his love and delight in us. We need a preacher to stand up here before you each and every week that says at the center of the story of the Bible is a God who is a refuge for the broken and a redeemer for the sinner. The Bible doesn't tell us how the right prayers and earnest devotions, through those we can become acceptable and pleasing to God, but instead it says God is a God who offers up the perfectly acceptable and pleasing sacrifice in order to make us accepted. See, David here is moving from pronouncement. Here's what God is like and here's what I am like. And now he's moving into wish, into hope. May it be so. Verse 14, may, this is a prayer, it's a a hope. May these words of my mouth and this meditation in my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Isn't this a wish that all of us have, that if there's a God, maybe he would accept us? Is this a wish that you had when you came in here this morning, that this God of the Bible is someone that you can relate to and that wants your good and is your redeemer and not your judge? We need his word. We need preaching to tell us that we can be made acceptable But you know, friends, it's not just his words that convinces us. His words point to something beyond them. This language of pleasing, being acceptable, comes from the the sacrificial system in Israel when those seeking God would offer a sacrifice to, to pay for their sins. They would offer this symbolic sacrifice to say, may I be made acceptable based upon this sacrifice because I know I'm not acceptable in and of myself. That's the language that he's using here. But in Jesus, what we see is God is not demanding our sacrifice that we pay for it, but he makes the sacrifice in order to make us acceptable and pleasing. The sacrifice that used to be an animal, that used to be on the altar, is now the person of his son, the person of Jesus, who is perfect, who is acceptable, and he makes us like him. That's David's hope. That's why he's jumping for joy. That's why he's delighting. He's realizing what the law actually points to. 
It points to a loving, forgiving, gracious God who doesn't hold David's sin over him, but forgives him based upon the perfectly acceptable, eternal sacrifice of Jesus that doesn't make us ritually clean, but really clean. And because we don't just get his death to make us clean, but we get his life to make us whole, to restore us. That it's not just that if you're a Christian, you're a forgiven person, but that now he's at work restoring you and making you beautiful. And that's what I want to tell you every week. That's what I want to preach to you every week. Through all of my limitations and my feet of clay and my words of clay, that God would get His powerful message through me to you, that He loves you and He wants to be with you forever. And if He can use me, then He can use you. He can use you to preach to friends and neighbors and coworkers and children to tell them that there is a powerful, gracious God who has spoken word, loving words to them and over them. And here's where you find it. Let's pray. Lord, would you continue to speak that loving word over us? Would you make us not just clean, but make us acceptable and make us new? And as we pursue following you through your written written word, through your law, that we would become more and more like you, that we can't earn salvation, but through your spirit, you can actually change us and you can make us to look more like you. And we pray that that would be true. I pray that my preaching would be more like your preaching. And I pray that all of us together as a church and as individuals, as we are gathered and then scattered out into our daily lives, that we would take those words of grace to those around us who are so needy uh, as we are. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.